Today we're continuing in our series, The Gospel of Noah. The title for this message is Salvation Through Judgment. And this message is sort of a part two to last week's message. If you missed last week, you'll be okay. Uh, I think it's all pretty self-contained, but if you do want to listen back, it is on our website, gracelifeavon.com. There once was a man named Utnapishtim who built an ark. He filled it with animals and survived a great flood, according to the Mesopotamian Epic of Gilgamesh. The Hawaiians have a tale of a man named Nu'u. He made a great canoe with a house on it, and he filled it with animals. He and his family survived a great flood that wiped out all other life after the world had become very wicked. There are stories in all sorts of cultures across this world that have been handed down from generation to generation and recorded in various writings. In fact, there's more than 270 such stories. Many of these stories are different from the biblical account, but they often share a lot of similarities. This overwhelming amount of evidence for a catastrophic event cannot simply be dismissed. Several weeks ago, Mike shared that the creation account serves not only as an account of history, but also as a polemic, a refutation or a response against ancient paganism. So, too, is the flood narrative. The biblical account of the flood serves as a historical account detailing what took place when God flooded the earth, but it once again serves as a polemic against the ancient pagan religions at the time when Moses wrote the book of Genesis. The Hebrew people had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. During that time, they would have become very aware of the pagan religions surrounding them, not only of Egypt, uh, but also the surrounding regions, as Egypt was kind of like a hub of all of life at that time. So they would have heard of other flood stories. One of the major differences in the biblical account of the flood and most of the others seems to be the reason for the flood. In many tales of the flood, it is simply because the gods were annoyed with humanity, those pesky little humans. And so, whether because they were bored or just annoyed, not happy with them, they wiped them out. But in the biblical account, God sends the flood to both judge the great wickedness of sinful humanity, intervening in their self-destruction, and to preserve his promised seed, the coming Messiah, who ultimately would crush the head of the serpent, as promised in Genesis 3. Moses writes to share that with his people and also to refute the other pagan religions of that time. Today we'll look at Genesis chapter 7 and we're going to unpack it in two ways. The waters of judgment and the justice of judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather together Uh, to spend this morning together, to worship together, to sing, to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ, to encourage one another, to find out different ways we can be praying for each other, to share in life for this, this brief moment. I ask that you would bless our gathering this morning, Father. We thank you for your love and great mercy towards us. And Father, as we hear this message, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive, our ears would be open to hear, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let's look at the waters of judgment. Now, we aren't going to read through all of the verses of chapter 7. I'd encourage you to read through it on your own time. But quickly, what we see in verses 1 through 10 is kind of a further explanation of what was about to happen. Chapter 6 is God's command to build the ark and the instructions as to how to do it. Some time has gone on since then. Possibly, as I mentioned last week, 65 to 75 years. Now, in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, we see Noah completing the ark and God telling him to gather the animals and his family in. And from this point, Noah would have seven days until the rain would fall. Let's pick it up with Genesis 7, beginning in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, just getting started. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three, the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. In August of 2016... South Louisiana, where my family and I were living, experienced a 1,000-year flood. So what that means is that the storm that hit that area had about 0.1% chance of happening in any given year. This storm dumped up to 32 inches in some parts of South Louisiana in a period of about 48 hours. For some perspective, the average rain in our area for a year is 34 inches. They estimate that the amount of rainfall was equivalent to 7.1 trillion gallons of water. We test this out every time and it always fails. Nearby rivers hit record heights and very quickly backflowed into the many bayous and the, uh, the channels that caused the flooding to hit the streets of the city and surrounding areas where we were. Yes, there's bayous everywhere in South Louisiana. Over 30,000 people had to be rescued by boats. And so along with the first responders, many people with boats formed a volunteer group now known as the Cajun Navy. Started going house to house to see if people needed help. And it certainly was a scary storm watching to see if your neighborhood was going to flood. Most areas of the city of Baton Rouge where we live flooded. And somehow, ours did not. However, my parents' neighborhood was one of the ones that flooded. It was a Saturday. Chanel, Olive, and I had gone to my parents' house around lunchtime. And as we were driving up, we saw that the waters were starting to fill the drainage ditches along the side of the road. Now, that's not completely an uncommon sight in Baton Rouge, as it rains quite often. Um, but by the time we finished eating lunch, we noticed that the water had started to hit the road. 
And so I told my parents, we're getting you out of here. Get what you need. You've got 20 minutes. And Chanel and I frantically went through the house, putting things as high up as we possibly could, uh, all to no avail in the end. While this was going on, somehow Olive napped in one of the bedrooms. And as we got in the car to drive off, the water covered the road. About an hour later, my dad and I drove back because we needed to get a few more things. We had to park about a block away and walk in. The water had nearly reached their door at this point. So we got the stuff that we needed very quickly, made our way out. And as we walked back to the car, uh, in some areas along the road, it was up to our knees. Now, it took about a week before we were able to get back into my parents' house, and it was a mess. It had taken on um, about three feet of water. Oops. And so when we got in, uh, it, was, it was just a mess. There was mud and worms everywhere, and the smell was just absolutely awful. And it's one of those smells that will stick with you the rest of your life. That's a drawer filled with water. The refrigerator had floated in the floodwaters and was laying face down in the kitchen. And when we picked it up, the door swung open. And floodwater mixed with expired food fell on top of me and a couple of the others. Not a pleasant day. I think I took about two or three showers that day. It took a couple of months, but eventually we got my parents' house gutted and restored. And for months on end, you would drive down the roads in Baton Rouge and the surrounding communities, and as far as the eye could see, would just be piles upon piles of debris. And eventually, though, life got back to normal. That's the gutting process. I learned very quickly how to do insulation work. I'm not putting that out there for any particular reason. <laughs> I've done enough insulation work for my lifetime. I've been through multiple hurricanes as well, including a couple of major ones, Katrina and Gustav, and witnessed the awful effects of wind and rain. And right here in our region this year, we've seen the devastation of flooding all the way up to Vermont and other areas as close as, I believe, Canandaigua took some flooding. Water and wind are very powerful. But all of that combined is nothing compared to the destruction that we're seeing in chapter 7 of this cataclysmic flood. We saw in the previous chapter that God would send the animals to Noah to take into the ark. Skeptics often question how would Noah have collected all these different species of animals from all over the world. Well, a couple things. The pre-flood world was different than the world today. Some scientists who accept the biblical account believe that there was one supercontinent and that as a result of the flood, the continents were formed. So these animals didn't have to journey across the seas to get to Noah. As well, it's important to note that the scriptures say God sent the animals to Noah. He didn't go across the land collecting them. Noah took a pair of each kind or family of animals, not species. Scientists have worked to determine how many true kinds or families that there are of mammals, salamanders, and newts, frogs, birds, turtles, crocodiles, and snakes. And they're still working on lizards and extinct animals, but so far the list comes in well under 600 different kinds. 
And when you consider, consider a pair of each unclean and seven pairs of each clean animal, they estimate that the number of the animals on the ark comes in well under 5,000 animals. One study showed that the ark, according to the dimensions the Bible gives us, could have fit somewhere around 70,000 animals before sinking. So after the flood, what these scientists believe is that all the many species of animals that we see today come from these original families or kinds that were taken aboard the ark. Now, we're not going to dig in to all the different things that skeptics are questioning and all the different ways that the flood happened and, and all of that. I do encourage you, if this is something that interests you, you can find all sorts of information online. There's some great websites uh, that have some information. With only seven days remaining, Noah and his family got the animals into the ark, and the family went in as well. We see in verses 11 and 12 that the great fountains of the deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. Rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. Of course, for the whole world to flood, it would have required a lot of water. What scripture shows us is that water not only fell from the sky, but it also burst from the depths. Scientists are now beginning to see the possibility of this as discoveries are taking place more frequently uh, of water existing in Earth's mantle. Genesis shows a catastrophic outbursting of water to the Earth's surface. Many believe that the cataclysmic flood was also a volcanic event. Because of the pressure from these burstings of water from the mantle, Volcanoes erupted both under the water and above ground, spewing lava, ash, and covering all of life. There would have been earthquakes and tsunamis, all working to reshape the earth. While these waters of judgment raged on, life was crushed underneath its weight. Yet Noah and his family were safe in the ark. The scripture says that God had shut them in. He had sealed them in, and he had preserved life through this judgment. Interesting to note that the name for God used here in verse 16 is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, underscoring God's faithfulness to preserve his promised seed and to preserve Noah's family. What we're seeing is that the very same waters that crushed all that drew breath, humanity, animals, The waters of judgment that destroyed plants, trees, and wiped away the garden in Eden also brought salvation for this family. As the waters crushed downward, the ark was lifted up. Let's take a look at the justice of this judgment. Let's read verses 17 through 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. 
they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. In this passage, the devastating results of the flood are described. Judgment, just as God had pronounced, was fulfilled. The waters prevailed. So much is said with that one word, prevailed. The waters prevailed mightily. Judgment had prevailed. God had prevailed. The earth was covered for 150 days or about five months. Noah and his family and all the animals would remain on the ark for another seven months before the land would be sufficiently dry for those in the ark to safely leave. Author Chad Bird writes, There the world was transformed into a cosmopolitan font. There the waters drowned a world of old Adams and old Eves who had not found grace in the eyes of the Lord, for they feasted their eyes on nothing but the stuff of earthly life. Outside the ark, creation shifted into reverse as man and beast drowned. Sun, moon, and stars became invisible. Trees and dry land vanished back back to Genesis 1-8 and day two of creation, when the waters above were separated from the waters below. But water, water everywhere was all there was to see. The judgment, as we noted last week, was necessary. Mankind was intent on self-destruction. And they, had they been allowed to continue in this state, all would have been lost. They were heading straight forward into self-destruction. And so God decided to destroy their self-destruction. But in sending judgment, God also sends rescue. God would save through judgment. Not in spite of judgment, not judgment and salvation. God saves through judgment. So these same waters that crushed sinful humanity lifted Noah's family who believed God. They received salvation through this judgment. God had a solution for the problem of man's sinfulness and the enemy's attempt to stop the promised seed. But really, the flood is only a type and a shadow of the ultimate solution. Because it's not the ultimate solution to sin. Tim Keller refers to the flood and the ark as a pattern for the solution, but not the solution itself. Meaning the judgment of the flood stopped the the violence that we see. It stopped the self-destruction. The waters reset the earth, but it was only a temporary reset. It wasn't the ultimate solution to sin. It's a shadow of it. As I said last week, Noah's family entered the ark The animals entered the ark, but what also entered the ark with Noah and his family was their sin. Noah had found grace. He looked to the promise. He obeyed God and was blameless, but he was still a sinner. But again, we're seeing the pattern of the solution and not the solution itself. God is showing a type and shadow for how he'll ultimately deal with sin, how he'll solve the problem of his own grief over sin and suffering, and how he'll ultimately end human violence and corruption. But if you're looking at this simply from a viewpoint as uh, this is a judgment on our immorality and a restoration of morality, then the flood fails miserably. Because again, no one his family brought sin with them into the ark. And we see proof of this rather quickly. 
Now, a few people asked me if we were going to cover the latter portions of Genesis chapter 9. And I said no, because that wasn't the plan. We'll go ahead and flip over to Genesis chapter 9. (laughs) Things change very quickly. Here we see that the flood could not solve the issue of immorality. Genesis 9, 20 through 25 Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. So a short time after coming off the ark, Noah plants a vineyard. And what we see here is that he got drunk. It didn't take long for sin. He acted shamefully. And rather than cover his shame... When his son Ham sees this, he runs out and tells his brothers the news. Now, whatever else took place, we don't fully know. There's a lot of speculation as to what happened here that caused Noah to awake and curse his grandson. He actually doesn't curse his son Ham, he curses his grandson. Now, it's not useful for us to speculate we see that some sort of sin occurred and it must have been pretty severe for Noah to curse Canaan. I draw your attention to this to show you how quickly sin is seen after the flood. We see that though the flood changed the earth, it was powerless to change the heart of Noah and his family. Sin was still present And it was in the heart. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, as we saw in our series on Hebrews. Under the old ways, sin could not be taken away. It could only be covered by the blood of animals. We see it in the life of Abraham. Abraham sinned. He was God's chosen man to father his chosen people. He deceived Pharaoh by telling Pharaoh that his wife was his sister. He sinned when he tried to bring about the promised son through his own means, and he got Ishmael. David lied, committed adultery, and murdered his friend. And yet, he is a man described as a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 51, David cried out for a clean heart. These men and more believed in the promised Messiah, but they didn't receive that clean heart in their lifetime. From a political viewpoint, the flood could be seen as the ultimate morality experiment. From the progressive view, it would be the ultimate experiment in social engineering. The ultimate reset socially, if you will. Noah and his family could create a social utopia. It proves this cannot work. From the conservative point of view, it's the ultimate return to traditional family values. The ultimate morality reset. All the bad taken away. Only the good 
remains. Proves this cannot work either. Why does the flood fail to bring about morality? Why does it fail to bring about utopia? Because though it was a judgment, and though Noah's family was spared, the flood could not remove sin. Noah didn't bring relief from their work and from the painful toil of their hands, and he didn't reverse sin's curse. Noah didn't crush the serpent's head like his father may have hoped for. The flood didn't bring about the new heart that was promised later in Ezekiel. So the flood proves that moralism fails. Salvation cannot simply be a message of do better, try harder, be more moral. Moralism fails to address the reason for wickedness and evil. Now, it certainly can restrain evil. And good government, leave that alone, good government has been instituted to be a restraint on evil and sin. But it can't change the heart. Because it's the fallen and sinful heart of man that needs to be addressed. Sin can't be fully dealt with without that new heart. Who will bring the new heart? Amen. We see this pattern of the solution later in the prophet Jonah's life. Jonah was called to go up and preach repentance to Nineveh. And he fled in a boat. A great storm rose up, and eventually Jonah is found out to be the cause of this storm. And he tells the people that he's with in the boat, throw me over into the waters, and you'll be saved. And so, in the water, in the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed this in Jonah 2, 2 through 4. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The same judgment that crushed Jonah beneath the waves and the billows saved those in the boat. And so what we're seeing here is another pattern to the solution. But Jonah cannot give a new heart. And even though he goes and does what the Lord had asked him to do, later in Jonah's story, if you remember back a couple years ago, we went through the book of Jonah. He's quite upset at the results of his preaching. Jonah cannot give a new heart. So again, who will? Well, it all comes together in Jesus. Matthew 12 38 through 41, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying that a greater storm, a greater flood, a greater judgment is coming, and this time I'm going to be crushed. 
I'm going to take that judgment. I'm going to be at the bottom of it, under the weight of it all. I'm going to be cast from the sight of my father. It's going to be an ocean of wrath and judgment, and it's all going to come down on me. Everything that humanity's sin deserves will be on my back. Jesus is saying, I will sink so you can be saved if you believe in me. So salvation through judgment shows us the absolute seriousness of sin. Because of sin, death entered the world. Violence entered the world. Immorality entered the world. All the things that you and I hate when we turn on the news and see. Just yesterday, a horrible murder happened, I believe, in the state of Georgia. Hate-filled heart. Taking the lives of four people. It causes our heart to ache. The just just punishment for these things is eternal death. And on our own, without Christ, this is what you and I deserve. See, the reality is that judgment is the only just option that is out there. Judgment cannot be escaped. And that's bad news. God's law is perfect, and the scriptures show us that we violated God's law. Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later he says that the wages of that sin is death. And sin is so serious that in order to fulfill his promise that he gave to Eve, God had to send his own son to take the crushing, to be judged on our behalf. In Hebrews 11, the writer says that Noah's faith condemned the world. But on the cross, Jesus was condemned for the world. Jesus stepped into the place of bad people so that we might not only become good, but actually become new creations with a new heart. On the cross, Jesus was judged in our place and we are saved. The same wrath and judgment that sank Jesus lifts you up. And so, no, you can't escape judgment. But the believer who is in Christ, who has heard the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus and said, yes, I believe, has been saved through it. Christ has taken that judgment for you. And that has huge implications for your life. Noah and his family were safe in the ark, and when they exited the ark, the judgment of the flood was passed. Right, Tom? I'm quoting Tom here. When Jesus died and came off the cross, judgment was passed. And so for the one who is in Christ, there is no more judgment. There's no judgment left for you. That judgment has been taken. What does it mean to be in Christ? We say that phrase a lot. Sometimes we can maybe assume that that's easily understood. Well, to be in Christ is someone who has believed the good news by faith and grace alone, who has been baptized spiritually into Christ. By faith, the believer has been spiritually united with Christ. The believer has become a partaker of Christ's death 
his burial, and his resurrection. And so the believer shares also in his life, according to Galatians 2. And as well, we share in Christ's nature and his divine power. These are now at work inside the life of the believer. Romans 5 shows that the one who is in Christ now has Christ's righteousness. And Ephesians 1 says that the believer shares Christ's inheritance. And so if you are a believer in what Christ has done for you at the cross, you don't have to fear God's, God's judgment on sin. There's no judgment left. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no future judgment for the believer to fear. There is only the inheritance of Christ to confidently hope for. And again, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a rock-solid assurance of what's to come, even if you don't know when it's coming. This is the promise for the believer. This is the good news for the believer. You have life in Christ. But if you're not a believer in Christ, the reality is that if you die in unbelief, there still is judgment remaining. Everlasting judgment. Everlasting separation from God. But hear me today. Jesus has made a way for you. Trust in him. Believe in him. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in the name of Jesus Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection to you. Believe that. How does this help us live? Noah and his family entered the ark with sin in their hearts and they left the ark, though judgment had passed with sin still in their hearts. The animals that entered the ark remained animals. But all who have entered into Christ by faith, the ark of Christ, are new creations. We don't remain as we entered. David cried out, for a new heart, but the believer has a new heart. And so the believer can pray these words. You have created in me a clean heart, O God, and renewed a right spirit within me. You will never cast me away from your presence, and you will not take your Holy Spirit from me. The believer is no longer enslaved to sin. You are now clean, holy, forgiven, And you are a child of your heavenly father. You're safe and secure in the holy ark of Christ. The body of the new and better Noah. Though you are no longer enslaved to sin and you have this clean heart, you will at times sin because of the flesh that remains. Remember, the gospel frees you to flee from that sin. You don't have to be entangled in it any longer. It's no longer your master. And so live in the newness that you've been given through the life of the Spirit. Reject those ways. Just as the waters prevailed over the earth, so Christ has prevailed over sin and death and the grave. Noah, whose name means rest, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You have grace as well. And you have been found within the one who gives you true rest the truer and better Noah. In life, you will face storms and trials. 
That is a guarantee. As a believer, you will face these things. And though you're already in the ark that is Christ, it's in these moments especially that you will need the good news of Jesus Christ. You'll need the safety of the gospel. So remember the gospel. Keep it in the forefront of your minds. Gather together and remind each other of the gospel. Remember what Christ has done for you. Live in the life that Jesus has given to you. Live from the reality of your union with Christ. Live knowing that you're loved, chosen, holy, and close to God. And so walk in step with the Spirit. As I say often, it's a fight of faith. It's a fight of endurance. It's not a sprint to the finish. It's the world's longest marathon. There will be times when you drift and you slip in these areas, and when that happens, you will feel guilt, you'll feel despair. The circumstances of life will threaten to crush you. And so when that flood enters in, remember the ark that you're in. Remember Christ. Remember the good news of what he has done for you. Another way to say this is just live as though the flood is over. Live in the reality that God's judgment for your sin is in the past. And if you are a Christian, then truly God's judgment over sin for you is over. And so live in the light of your new reality in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truer and better ark that those of us who have believed can find safety and security in. We thank you that he took our judgment that we deserved, the wrath that we deserved. He took that in his body fully. We thank you that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose again, that he appeared to many witnesses and that he has gone to be at your right hand. He has truly conquered sin, death, and the grave. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has not yet believed, I ask that you would grant them the gift of faith. Father, grant them the gift of repentance. Change their heart. Change their mind. We thank you for the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the blood is enough. And that because of that blood, we can have a clean heart. We are made new creations. Help us to live in light of that. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.